I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number four. Welcome to the fourth Life in Dub podcast, a new series of in-depth interviews with people who've lived their lives in dub and reggae. Thanks again for all those messages and well-wishers who've been enjoying Life in Dub. As ever, keep those messages, comments and suggestions coming in and let me know what you think about the podcast. You can subscribe to the show wherever you pick up your podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, you know, all the usual places. And you can email me at vibronics at gmail.com. And you can visit the podcast website, lifeindub.com. Last time, I was talking about moving the Dub Cupboard studio here in Leicester. And this time, sat in the new studio, I wanted to talk a bit more about Leicester. It's been my home for 30 years now, and it's fair to say there would be no Vibronics without the people, the history, and the general inspiration that Leicester's provided me, and still provides me with now. It might not be the biggest or most exciting city in the world, but the love of dub and reggae, and in particular sound systems, runs very deep in this city. When I moved here at the end of the 1980s, you would hear reggae music booming out of cars, houses, and venues across the city. And even though times change, there's sound system dances happening all the time, big and small, right here in Leicester. So with this in mind, me, Madhu Messenger, and a small team of people decided to launch a new project called Distant Drums that will be researching, then presenting, the reggae and sound system history of Leicester in what we hope will be a very cool exhibition with a difference later this year. So I'll let you know more about Distant Drums as the year moves on. My guest this week is Tom Tattersall, one of the founder members of Mungo's Hi-Fi. This is the first remote hookup of this podcast series, with me sat in the Dub Cupboard studio in Leicester and Tom in his studio up in Glasgow. I first met Tom and Doug in Glasgow maybe 20 years ago, just as they were starting out with Mungo's Hi-Fi and I was releasing my first records. Since then, their team has grown and Mungo's has become a really successful sound system label and music studio. And in this interview, you can hear Tom talk about how they started, and learn more about the whole Mungo's journey. So, enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So, Tom, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Steve. You're uh, all the way up there in Glasgow. This is the first remote recording I've done on the podcast show, yeah? Okay, cool. It's the first remote podcasting I've ever done too. <laughs> well, there you go, that makes the two of us. So yeah. if there's any technical yeah. craziness, then hopefully it'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and what I'm doing with the podcast is I'm kicking off each uh, edition with asking people the same question. And because um, the podcast is all about people who live their lives in dub and reggae. So, um, and I'm asking people if they want to name a track or a song that they think really changed things for them. They, they, they listen to that track and after that, there was no going back. So I don't know if you want to mm-hmm. tell me about that kind of experience. Sure. Well, for me, it was more about um, a particular night. Well, there's, there's a couple of different occasions where the path of my musical life was was changed significantly. Um, the first time was seeing Jar Shaka play in um, in the foyer of Brixton Academy. Uh, I was about 18. I'd just moved to Glasgow and I heard about uh, a dub festival that was on in Brixton and I'd travelled down especially for it. And it was the first sound system I'd ever seen, proper sound, and the first time I'd seen Jar Shaka as well. And I was just blown away by the whole thing, like obviously the sound and the bass itself, but but also the 
the DIY nature of of how it was all running and how those different guys on the mic jumping on and the improvisation part of that. Um, and also struck by Josh Acker's um, massive belief in what he was doing. It was so clear that he was completely into it. There was no pretense. Like, this was his life. And um, that really that really affected me. That wasn't the essential music thing where he played in the foyer, was it? It might have been. I mean, it was 25 years ago. It was a bit Because <laughs> if so, I, I was there. Because I remember it. Because back in the day... You remember the Essential Music Festival, obviously, started off yeah. in Brighton and whatever. Yeah. And then they did a couple in London, and they, I'm sure they did a show in Brixton Academy, and Augustus Pablo was playing yes. live. Yes, And I remember that's... seeing him at the stage door. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I don't know if I was even... I might have even been playing for some reason. I'm sure I wasn't, because it was years ago. But yeah, uh-huh. that, and, and Shaka was in the foyer. That's right, that's the same one, yeah. And I, I remember Augustus Pablo, he was already quite ill then and, and they kind of helped him onto stage he was very very frail um but it was just amazing to 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 see him before he passed you know and that was a real kind of game changer for you then to to kind of experience the sound <clears throat> yeah it was yeah both both musically and like hearing so much dub um and also the whole concept of sound system and that was really a spark for us wanting to start building our own sound as well and, and Shaka's obviously always had um, very much his own like homemade, hand-built kind of sound system. But in those days, it was one of the older iterations with the old double eighteen boxes at the front. If I remember, that's and, like, that's right, and no no grills on them. That really struck me that he hasn't even got grills. So what if someone pops them? But of course, like people are so respectful that no one would stick a finger through his, his uh, drivers. So after um, after that, you went back and you, you you'd moved to Glasgow at that point. You say. Yeah, I was already living in Glasgow, yeah, yeah. Um, but I just want to touch on the other musical night that, that changed me, my musical direction, uh, oh, and, and for Mungos in general, and that was um, in around 2004, 2005, uh, a friend of ours called Gordon started bringing um, dubstep artists up to Glasgow, and before that, uh, there was really we hadn't heard any dubstep really, from the likes of Scream and Marla and so on. Um, so he asked us to provide the, the sound system for the night. And we, we played a little bit at the beginning and then and then these guys would, would play the rest of the night. And we were blown away by the different take on dub, um, kind of starting from... Well, traditional dub for me, it, it starts with roots music and then it's stripped down to its bare bones and uh, and it works that way. Whereas these guys would start from a different point of view where it was more electronic dance music and they would add rootsy elements into it. And that combined with uh, the attention to detail and the mixing of it as well, where you'd combine beat, beat match two tunes together so that you'd get something new in the overlap while they were mixing. Um, we just found it stunning, and straight after the the first night that we did there, I was in my studio trying to recreate it as best I could. <laughs> and wh- wh- when was that night? What year was uh, that? I-, I reckon it was 2004, 2005. Yeah, I guess that's when the whole dubstep thing really sort of started to happen. Yeah. I suppose, in, I mean, in London, it had already been going on a little bit before that. 
Um, but Glasgow's often been a little bit of a vacuum for musically. Sometimes um, music takes a couple of years or a, a bit of a while before it reaches. Well, the, the whole Glasgow thing for me is interesting because obviously that's how we met originally. Is that because I think Mungos and Vibronics started off pretty much the same time, really. I guess around 97, 96, that kind of time. Yeah, it, it was a little bit later for us, maybe 99 when we first started doing nights regularly. Yeah. But I remember coming up because we had some mutual friends, because Boney L that sung on the very first um, Vibronics releases. Um, she had friends up in Glasgow, part of the old school Mungo's crew, and we ended up That's coming right. up and playing um, yeah. one of your nights. And I can't remember where it was. Do you, I don't know if you remember where it was. Yeah, I do. It was in the, the Woodside Social Club, which was a, a Glasgow sure working... Are you sure it was Woodside? Are you sure it wasn't a different night? Because I remember the Woodside really clearly. I wonder I mean, if this it was... This is years ago. Was it in a basement club? Um, yeah, quite possibly. It, it could have been the thirteenth note at the time. Um, I yeah, <laughs> that rings a bell. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah. So that's the kind of the beginning of of Mungo. So I don't know if you want to talk mm. a bit about how Mungo's was established and kind of how it all started and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah. If you if you don't mind, I'll, I'll rewind a bit before that and give a bit of background, more from my own my personal point of view as a producer and, and so on. Um, yeah, sure. So while I was at school, I was uh, I was really into rock music and I really liked Jimi Hendrix and a lot of indie bands that were around at the time. And then when I was sixteen or seventeen. Um, someone gave me a, a mixtape made by Andy Weatherall and he'd done a, a rootsy dub special mixtape and I'd never heard anything like it. I found it instantly in interesting, like a different way of making music. That was kind of always in the back of my mind and then at the, the end of my school years I was really into making electronic music and used to borrow old analogue synths and the Atari computer from school in the summer holidays and... Um, and try and try and make you know kind of ambient style things or anything really. I just like the process of doing it. So were so, you a musician then? Had you learned to play music, or were you just a total dabbler? Yeah, I'd, I'd had piano lessons when I was younger, um, but I ended up stopping when I was twelve or thirteen because I I didn't enjoy the process of um, always reading music and playing classical pieces and, and other people's things and what I enjoyed more on the piano was making up my own rock and roll riffs and um, just trying to improvise and make things up so I stopped the lessons and I built my own electric guitar and, and a bass as well um, I taught myself so guitar you, you made these yourself? yeah I did yeah it was, it was my design project in school to make an electric guitar um, so, so I went to the sort kind of get involved and make stuff and sort of be practical then? Yeah, definitely. I've always been quite hands-on that way, yeah. Yeah, so I played in various bands at school, um, all kinds of styles really, like rock and indie and one earlier on and then got more into jazz and funk later on. All of these different influences and styles I felt I think have been really useful in later years uh, when producing dub and, and reggae as well they've all had had a hand to play 
So anyway, yeah, that was before I moved to Glasgow. And then when I moved to Glasgow, one of my uh, flatmates in the student halls I was living in was from London and was a DJ and introduced me to all kinds of new dance music that I hadn't heard before, like uh, Orbital and The Orb and and this kind of thing. Um, and he had an old... So this is like early 90s then, obviously. Yeah, yeah, early 90s stuff. Uh, and also Ambient Dub as well, which was quite big in those times. Uh, Mixed Master Morris and you know lo- loads of other people. Um, and he had a, a Boss drum machine, and we used to use just the drum machine to make really basic tunes where we'd tune tune a tom-tom to become the bass sound and make a bass line with that and then use the drums and, and you know, just try to squeeze the most we could out of this one drum machine. Um, and then as time went on, I ended up buying a keyboard um, and started hooking things up and then an Atari computer and, and just used the MIDI, used the early Cubase and, and hooked all these things up and then just became obsessed with it. And and was in my bedroom, basically sacrificed most of my uni- university career. <laughs> well, like I was saying to someone the other day in one of the interviews, it's like it's so time consuming. People have no idea yeah. how long. Yeah. You, I mean, even now, it's like I spend a lot of time with music. But when you start and you you have a bit more time on your hands anyway, but you're kind of learning as you go as well. Yeah. In in the first couple of years of having moved to Glasgow, I was really making dance music house and techno and electro um and then bought ended up buying a couple of dub records from the local record shop and and my interest for dub was reignited and just started buying more do you, do you remember what those records were um were, were, were they old like jamaican dub or more modern stuff actually i remember one of the very first things i had was uh it was a compilation cd on pressure sounds um had Horace Andy and Iroy and a few kind of 70s um, artists on it. And I just loved that CD. And then the, the records I got were more like the Roots Radix and I can't remember exactly which ones now, but uh, Dillinger and dub versions of Dillinger and things like that. Um, Wackies from, from the States. Yeah, so got more and more into that. And then and reggae as well, started buying more reggae and then just got more and more into trying to produce that kind of sound as well and gradually left the dance music behind. Although I, tr- I you know, you can't just leave everything you've been working on for the last seven, eight years straight away. So those kind of influences remained as I switched over to making dub and reggae. Yeah, and still to this day, I think it's fair to say those things are there. So what... So- so looking at like so you're up in Glasgow at that point um mm. and is there any like reggae or dub culture in the city around that time this is like mid 90s i guess yeah that's right um so there were two main things going on one one was a sound system called rampant sound um and i still see the guys occasionally is that stevie yeah so stevie and then um who ran the sound system and then Paul and Alan who DJ'd on it. Um so they they used to do regular sessions. Um and they they brought Jar Shaka up as well, I remember, and and other guests, conscious sounds, I think. Um so we used to hang out with them and help lift boxes with them. And I suppose 
the only other thing that I know of at the time was a more kind of poppy reggae night, like tease me, tease me, tease me, these kind of tunes, <laughs> which was... Well, those tunes like, like Mr. Vegas, Hands High, whatever, they, they uh-huh. were like really big tunes at the time, I guess. Like, yeah. That was a big scene for that. Yeah, of. that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it was two kind of um, different parts of, of Jamaican music that that were up at the time. And we gravitated more to the, the dub the, the dub nights for sure. Um, but yeah, compared to probably most other cities in the UK, um, certainly in England, there was very little going on. Scotland's always had far fewer people in Jamaican communities up here than, you know, London or Birmingham or, or most British uh, English cities. Um, so it, it felt like there was really space for us to to do things here and and to kind of do it in the way that we wanted uh, without being really influenced that much by people around us. We could just choose the, our favourite elements of dub and music that we liked. Well, I think because if you're not in London, then it's like me being based in Leicester. Mm-hmm. It's, you just have a different experience, different set of influences, and it, in one hand it can be quite frustrating to be not in the kind of main like thrust of the music world. Yeah. But at the same time you can kind of do what you want as well and I think that's like that that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and musically sometimes I think it helps to be not surrounded by um other music. Obviously the, everyone has influences, but it's easy to get sucked into doing exactly what or similar to what everyone else is doing if that's all you hear around you. Whereas we didn't really have that much influence apart from records we heard and occasional trips to London. And so at some point, you set up what the sound system first? That's that's kind of how I remember it. I, I could be totally wrong. Well, before the sound system, um, myself and Doug, it was the two of us that set Mungo's up together, um, we used to DJ as the dub dentists uh, before we have a, had a sound and we'd play local bars and clubs in Glasgow uh, on, on a small scale and, you know, for, for 20 quid and a, and a pint of beer kind of thing. The, the, the dentist thing, what, what what's all that about? Oh, um, one of our favourite producers was Keith Hudson and his day job was a dentist uh, and his night job was a dark, hard dub producer and we kind of liked the bizarre nature of that, so... We borrowed his uh, his job as our name. No, I, I, I never knew that he was a, he was a dentist. Yeah. So he's brilliant, brilliant character, amazing producer, yeah. and like did his own thing completely, which which I love. Yeah. So, so that's you and um, you and Doug working together. That's right. Yeah. And then yeah, at some point you decided to kind of move things forward. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'd well, I'd had that experience with with Jar Shaka's sound in London, and then. Like I said, we were hanging out at the rampant sound nights in Glasgow and we knew we wanted to build a sound at some point but had no money and didn't really know how to start it. And then we had this lucky find where um, there was a skip outside a theatre in Glasgow and there were four speaker boxes sitting in it. And we thought, oh, there's no chance these will be working. Um but we we dragged them out and carried them home one by one. <laughs> and uh, this is before any kind of transport. Yeah, obviously. yeah, we didn't have vehicles at that time. Um, 
and we we managed to get an old amplifier from somewhere and try them out, and we found that most of them were were working. Um, and the, these were kind of mid boxes with a little piezo tweeter in each one, so it wasn't a, a full sound by any means, but it made a decent noise. Um, and then soon after that, I, I was um, going to Caledonian University at the time, and they were refurbishing the student union. And I noticed that when they were doing that, they they took out the old PA and had left it in a back room, and it had been sitting there for months. And I went to inquire about the bass bins that they had there, and typically for a student union, no one really knew anything about them. And they said, well, you can have them for 50 quid. So I've got these pair of lovely 18-inch uh, cube bass bins uh, and some tops um, that that really kind of completed the first iteration of our sound at the time. That's it, because when you, you don't have to have much of a sound to start to get that enthusiasm and to get the enthusiasm for wanting to play and put your own dances on. That's right. Kind of, I think especially if you're away from London where you're not hearing big, big sounds all the time. It's yeah. like, we've got this and we're going to play out with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a really exciting time. I remember the first time we had all the speakers set up in our living room and turned on the different boxes one by one first the tops and then the mids and then the bass and when they all came in together it just sounded so sweet and it was like it was a tingle down the spine you know suddenly realizing that we had this this power to play music wherever we wanted and in whichever way we wanted yeah and to, and to play the, the selection you want as well rather than like having to fit in with someone else's night and whatever it's like i guess it's like sort of DIY ethic, isn't it? Of like, yeah, we, we can do it ourselves. Yeah, yeah that's right. And that's, um, that's, that's been important to us the whole way through and even now that we've never really had um, management or investment from, from anywhere. Um, it's always just been a slow, slow process of gradually building up bit by bit and learning along the way each, each kind of part of what we do. Oh, so so what? just to sort of move things around a bit and just sort of get yeah. a bit of a sense of like, because it's interesting to hear how it all started and obviously now um, things, um, Mungo's Hi-Fi very well established and um, and you still committed to being in Glasgow? Have you ever thought we need to move away from this place? No, we've, we've never thought that. I mean, it's partly for practical reasons in that we all have families now and kids at school and so on. Um, but we all really love Glasgow uh, for, for different reasons and um, its location hasn't really been a problem in terms of travelling around the world. You know, it's, it's much the same as living in any city. If it's got an airport and you're getting booked to play gigs in Europe and, and elsewhere, then it's easy enough to get anywhere, really. Yeah, because it's like, it's like living in Leicester, like I said before. It's kind of, when I started Vibronics, I was, half of me was thinking, I, you know what, I might have to move to London to do it because that seemed to be the place everything was. But then after a while, I realised that, no, no, I, I, I can do it here because it's got its own like spirit going on. And yeah. It's kind of, um, you know, there's there's artists and venues and there's, there's, there's a, it's just different to London and it's maybe not as big, but there's there's stuff there, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the the, uh, the crowd in Glasgow were always really receptive as well, especially in the early days when we started running nights at the, the Woodside Social Club. Um, 
even though well I, I remember the woodside we we played there a couple of times and it was like it was it was a riotous night definitely yeah it was it was great uh, such a bizarre thing to think about now that it seems so long ago where obviously smoking was still allowed and the, the whole place smelled of decades of weddings and and old men smoking and playing snooker but it it was the perfect place really to start off and and We'd have really good crowds every time, and and crowds that were really into it. And it's like what what I remember from the the nights that we played up there as well is that, um, just a, I guess what is maybe like the sort of trademark of Mungo's is just this real range of different music, and not hearing just the standard stuff or just what someone's released at the moment. It's like you're really hearing loads of different stuff. Yeah, I'd I'd like to think we've always played a wide range of stuff and. Um, I guess that reflects our influences and and our likes. You know, I, personally, I like music right across the board. E- even within the theme of Jamaican music, I love everything from ska to to harder dancehall and and everything in between. Um, so we've always tried to to show that when we we play out. I guess as well. one thing that kind of t- sort of surprised me, I guess, at the time is like this love of like what. Like I guess like 80s dancehall kind of stuff, which at the time was sort of, I wasn't really hearing anywhere. And this is before dubstep came along and started to really dig into that. But that seemed to be something that was you'd, you'd connected with quite early on, is that kind of sound. Yeah, I, I would say that was a lot to do with Craig joining uh, Mungo's. Um, so he, Craig grew up in Stornoway in, in the Western Isles. Um, and he, That's what, an island? Uh, so it's the Isle of uh, Lewis, and Stornoway is the town on it. Um, and he'd grown up m- more f- uh, with hip-hop and dancehall and and had got into music that way, whereas Doug and myself were more into Roots in the early days and expanded out that way. Uh, Craig had come from the other angle and, and he brought more of a dancehall influence um, and also a, um, a different way of mixing. He was he was more of a DJ and was paid more attention to keeping a flow going in the night with with no breaks between tunes, which was kind of the traditional way that and that Doug and I used to play as well. Um, so that was a really powerful effect on us, and it kind of broadened our our musical range. And when it comes to the musical range, it's like obviously a big part of Mungo's. I guess the, and the thing that most people know about it is is your music releases cause with the sound system, which is, you know, we can talk about the sound system in a bit. Now it's moved on, it's travelled all, all yeah. over the world, certainly all over Europe. But your music has really, um, it's gone everywhere mm-hmm. and it's been really successful and um, you've had quite a few like big hits in this sort of reggae world. And um, I just wonder if you want to talk about kind of how that started. Because I, I remember mm. like Dubhead releases at the beginning and mm. stuff and... You know, that's like a really a long time ago, and obviously there's a rich history there of producing and releasing, and I just wonder how that all kind of came about. Well, a lot of that really came from, the, it was related to the sound system nights we were doing, where we would bring a guest vocalist, um, in the early days, people like Aishu and Quasi Asante and, um, and guys like that, uh, Kenny Knotts as well a bit later on and what we would do is bring them up the day before and, and for a day after and spend time with them do do some work in the studio and then do the session um, and then often the day after the session we'd do more 
in the studio. And with with Kenny Knotts particularly, um, what happened was we'd record the session and Kenny's someone who thrives off um, off the vibes of a night and an audience reaction. So some things he came up with in the session were just spontaneous bits of genius, I think. Um, and we'd listen back to the session and find little bits that, that sounded really good and then say, why don't we use that as a starting point um, and, and record something in the studio based on that. And, and that worked a lot of times with uh, artists we brought up. I, I was always really in, into songs and song songwriting. Um, I was, as I was saying before, I got into dub, I liked rock, and also the Beatles were a massive influence. And uh, I loved the way they could write songs in so many different styles, but that all had a kind of a, a sing-along nature or some just incredibly good hooks that, that you could remember really easily. And uh, I've always tried to keep that that element within when I'm working with artists to try and get a good hook and, and make sure there's something in there that's really memorable. Because I think that's something that um, I definitely associate with Mongos is this kind of, like, a, yeah, the hook and the song and mm-hmm. kind of... Like, for want of a better word, some sort of a slight pop element. Yeah, as definitely. Because well, it's like, because yeah. with reggae music, I find that people sort of really can over intellectualize it and whatever. But reggae music's essentially kind of like pop music. You've got a verses and chorus and a little hook, and it's designed for people to dance to. And for me, it's the most amazing music in the world, and it's amazing and deeply spiritual and everything. But the essence of it is kind of, it's, it's straight up simple music, songwriting. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of that's what comes across in the Mongo's releases as well. Yeah, I, I suppose so. And it's strange to think um, Jamaican music, like Studio One Productions, at the time were basically well, they were pop music, you know, kind of what we would see Rihanna or Beyonce today. Um, that's probably how Jamaicans perceived Studio One releases. They were really like they were catchy songs and. Um, I think there's also just sticking on that period of of early Jamaican music. There was a an interesting tension between um, this newfound music in Jamaica, where the, the musicians who were involved were also influenced by music that was coming out of America and by jazz, and you had this crossover of a songwriter writing and singing a song and then these jazzy musicians who might have preferred to be in jazz bands but you know that they they had to make money and i can imagine cox and dodd kind of telling them to tone down the jazz bits and like don't do a crazy solo and um i think that that kind of tension has has happened again and again through uh reggae and dub history where the crossover of cultures has, has um, made musically interesting things happen. I think that's it's really important. I think, um, you know, I'd, I'd hate to be in a world where people only listen to, to reggae music and don't ever put any other influence into it. Because the beauty of reggae music is, is to be able to like throw other things in but still keep it as reggae music. That's kind of what I find interesting about producing. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And even outside of reggae, I think, that same thing has happened with with jungle, um, with dubstep, 
um, even with with two tone ska in the eighties, there's the British pop element with a, a Jamaican ska element, and not only does it um, make the music interesting, I think it has a genuinely beneficial effect on culture in the UK and integration between black people and white people. Um, and that's something that's really important to me and something I think the UK has been really successful with, even though there's obviously there's problems still. Um, I think music is has been at the forefront of helping integrate peoples. Yeah, it's a, it, UK is, is a melting pot and... Like, you know, I live in Leicester and Leicester's like such an incredibly diverse city and I think about the people that I work with and influence me. It's kind of, that's totally where Vibronics comes from. Um, but this kind of like sort of pop, for, for want of a better word, thing, it's like just to yeah. sort of yeah. talk about what you're doing at the moment, this Eve Lazarus project. Yeah, doing, sure. It's like that's, yeah. that's quite yeah. sort of, um, you know, I, I don't want to say commercial, but it's like it's kind of catchy and... Kind of, um, I don't. I don't know if you want to tell me a bit about that project, how that came about, and and how that's going, because because she seems like a great singer, and sure. it seems part of the Mungo's continual find great artists mm-hmm. and work with them. Yeah, that's the album we've released with with Eva More Fire is probably one of the most different uh, to what we've made before, um, and, and that was a conscious decision as well, partly because we want to keep expanding our musical um, range and and also because Eva herself is a massively talented singer and rapper and um, toaster and we wanted to be able to capture all those elements in one record and not just stick to one thing and and not even keep it Jamaican themed um, all the way through so yeah we we wanted to make something that that crossed over um, into other worlds and that kind of goes hand in hand with the way clubs have been changing or at least places where we've played um, over the last 10-15 years there's, there's oft, often been a situation where you've got a club with um, a dubstep room a dub reggae room or a jungle room that all, all these different things combined in the same night and that in itself is kind of helped cross the music over between people that might not have listened to one or the other before and they kind of introduced it to it that way so um yeah the album with the with Eva had that kind of idea behind it and and wanting to kind of reach people out with our usual um dub reggae dance all community um and how, how do you manage that with like obviously just to you've got a reputation for doing like dub and reggae and then you, when you're doing a project like the Eva project that's a little bit kind of got a broader remit, then um, how how do you go about trying to get it to more people? Well, I, sp- I suppose, first of all, by making, trying to make the music broader and have it, having more kind of dance music influences, you know, a hint of hip-hop in there and hints of, of dubstep and... Um, and then, I mean, on, on the on the business side of it, then we've been slowly learning the process of releasing records. And with this one in particular, we made a real effort to try and combine all the different elements at the same time. So to try and get it to radio DJs and radio stations 
um, at the same time as giving it to magazines or uh, or interviewers to release uh, to, to to review a bit more like how a a pop record or a more mainstream record would, would be released. And and it seems to work. You know? you, am I right in thinking you you're in the middle or have done a tour with her and the sound system recently? That's right. We we have been doing a lot of dates with Eva. Not always with the sound system. Uh, some have been and some some without. Um, but yeah, there's a whole a whole load of them. And then the tour finishes in New Zealand in the in the new year and, and Australia. And with, as well. with the sound system and an act like Eva, then. Is it? Are you getting some different people along to the sessions who maybe haven't witnessed a sound system before and are maybe kind of surprised by it? Or I, th- yeah, I, I think we probably have. Um, one thing we've really noticed with with touring with Eva is that people are singing back the lyrics of every song to her as she's as she's singing, which is incredible. Nice. Well, they're like yeah, there's there's super catchy songs, I guess. So. And then yeah. you say you're off to off to New Zealand. That's right. Yeah, D- Doug's actually doing the the touring in New Zealand and, and Australia. Um, some festivals there and, and regular clubs that we've been and to. What before. do you make of the whole um, internationalness of the kind of reggae and dub scene and kind of like if you think about maybe when you started and like had ambitions to play in Glasgow and now it's kind of really worldwide. Uh-huh. Is it like is that any kind of surprise to you? Because it's a constant surprise to me. Yeah. It, I never thought in the early days that we would play outside of Glasgow, to be honest. It was never a... We didn't have a long-term plan to, to end up playing all over the world. But yeah, it's, it's such a lucky and privileged thing to, to be involved in. And it's a great way to experience other countries as well, uh, where you, you're not just on holiday, but you're meeting people there who already live there and can show you the interesting things about a city or, or a country. Um it's a really privileged thing to be able to do. Whereas once you start travelling and going further afield, you realise this 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 is music scenes all over the world that kind of just we never had access to in the UK before. And I I find that kind of just a sort of surprise, really, because I I guess before I thought there was only the stuff that we were kind of spoon fed when we were younger. Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting to see how, particularly on the dub scene. Um, Countries like the States have taken a long time to pick up on the idea of sound systems and, and dub nights with using sound systems. Um, but it's great to see that's something that's really taking off now. And I think um, the States in, a partic- in particular is a place to watch over the next while. I think there's going to be a lot of things going on there. and We're, we're really trying to um, get more tours over there. And talk, just talking about the kind of businessy side of it, is it's kind of because you, you're like a collective, I guess, or there seems to be a few of you. And I wonder if you want to sort of talk a little bit about how Mungo's is run and, and if you had any kind of business experience, because there aren't many examples of like sort of underground mm. businesses that's, that managed to be sort of successful for so long. Yeah, so we've really learned along the way. And I suppose the thing that's that's different about us to many sound systems or or crews is that um, we usually take turns DJing between three of us. So in, in the early days, we'd often all travel somewhere with the sound system and, and play the gig together. We realised that, well, firstly, 
that it's not necessarily going to be a better night musically with three selectors all all playing together. Um, and then secondly, from a practical point of view, we would we're starting to get burned out by traveling every weekend and late nights and uh, you know days on the road. So we started kind of um, just doing it one by one, and and that seems to work really well. And we all have an idea, like a common thread musically that that we that we kind of play. So that that's meant that we can play a lot of gigs in a year, but but not get frazzled. Um, and especially once you start having family and kids, it's just not possible to go away every weekend and travel. So you, you seem to have done well with like you, you. You all seem to be on the same kind of level. Yeah, I think I think so. Um, we occasionally do get a request for one or other of us. Sometimes it's because one of us has developed a, re- a relationship with a particular promoter, um, and we do have slightly different styles of playing. Um, and occasionally, a promoter will will ask for one of us because he knows that that person knows the night and and knows the music that's going to fit best with his night. And, but that's fine, you know. So if you're looking at like Glasgow these days, as opposed to sort of the Glasgow that Mungo's was um, was established in, then what 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 what's Glasgow like these days? What what's happening there now? Um, it, it's really thriving. It's great. It, it's really good to see. I mean, that there are probably four or five sound systems running now, um, and and more crews as well that don't have sounds that that play. Um, some dub reggae, some more kind of um, Afrobeat and this kind of thing, but w- with a similar um, a similar vibe still to you know running sound system. And yeah, it's just great to see lots of young crews. And strangely for us, we hardly ever play in Glasgow anymore. <laughs> um, we we used to run Walk and Skank Night, and we still play at that. It's a, a smaller Thursday night club. Uh, we still play maybe once a month in there, but it became quite hard to put on sound system nights in Glasgow, um, partly because venues became harder and harder to persuade that to let us bring in two tons of speakers. I think that's the same everywhere. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so we we stopped putting on nights with the sound in Glasgow and just concentrated on travelling further afield. Um, but I think we're probably going to start doing some nights again before too long with the sound. Uh-huh. Yeah, because the sound system is obviously compared to the the first sound system which you got out of a skip is really something. Now. Yeah, <laughs> and it has a reputation for being something that's like it's it's a you know it's a top of top sounding sound system. It's kind of and that seems to be something that kind of guys have focused on over the last however many years to make sure that it's kind of at that level. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that the sound itself has been influenced by the kind of music we've been into and the kind of work we've been doing. Um, for example, the Outlook Festival in Croatia has been a big part of, of our growing up as a sound and as an act over the last 10 years. Um so we we would run the sound run the Mungo's Arena in Croatia for Outlook and Dimensions festivals. So it would be eight days of of music in total with all kinds of different. You're crews, hearing a lot of different, different music genres on the sound, I guess, aren't you? Yeah, so you're learning a lot exactly through that. And also because of that, we knew we we had to have a sound that was flexible. That it it couldn't be 
just uh, couldn't be really old. Uh, as much as I love old um, sound systems with, with lots of character that but aren't necessarily sharp and clear and fast to respond, we had to come up with something that was kind of a mix between the two. So we we stuck to the the traditional eighteen inch scoops that so many reggae dub sounds have, um, but then had more more modern top boxes and um, started using digital amplifiers. Um, I think it's a, a nice mix between old and new. Yeah, it's, it's, that, that it sounds can amazing. Take any kind of music. Always, I mean, we played on it in Bristol maybe last year, and like just just sounded great. But just hitting on the the Outlook thing is that when we've played on your sound in Outlook a few times, Pula in Croatia is quite a long way from Glasgow. It is. How, how does that work? <laughs> it seems a long way, but if you've got two drivers per van, um, you can get there in two days. And what what we used to do was uh, play at a, a festival in Slovakia the weekend before Croatia. Uprising. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it would be about a day and a half, two days drive there, and then we'd we'd run the sound that weekend and perform there. And then it was only, well, seven or eight hours onwards to Croatia from there. And um, would, would you say that being based in Glasgow has made you accept that you have to travel? Because that's something I really... Because it's funny, when you talk to people from London, anything outside the M25 seems to be like the other end of the world. Whereas if you're not, uh-huh. you know, in Leicester, you, you have to travel to places. And I guess in Glasgow, you have to travel. So I guess that's, in some ways, it can be quite helpful, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it certainly trained us. You know, live, living in Glasgow means that basically any gig, and most of which are, have been in England, um, you just become really used to traveling to, you know, eight hours, nine hours to Bristol or or to London or Brighton and... The more you do it, the the shorter the journeys seem, in in a way. <laughs> but if you say, but you, if you want to do the show, you have to get there as well. And I think people who don't play regularly don't realise like what an arduous task it can be sometimes to get to places. And it's kind of because it's so great to play in front of a crowd, and that that's yeah. like, we all love doing that. And and I, I personally enjoy travelling, but there's times when it's really hard as well. And, and particularly with the sound system, one, one thing I've found hard and probably as I get older find even harder is um, having a long journey, say nine hours to Bristol, setting up the sound for two hours and then having to play for potentially four hours. And and your your head's been in such a different place, traveling, setting up, sound checking, that suddenly you've got to put this other DJ head on where you've got to really think about music and it's it's a lot to squeeze into one day. It is, but that's the authentic sound system experience as well, isn't it, I guess? I mean, we, we had yeah. Jar Shaka here in Leicester. We talked about Jar Shaka at the beginning. He was here in Leicester yeah. a couple of weeks ago. He's still driving the truck, lifting the boxes, yeah. playing all night, and that, that's the kind of warrior side of sound system, I guess. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I guess you guys have to have some element of if that's what you're going to do. You're going to load up the sound and travel halfway around Europe with it. I'd say the, these days we're, we're probably doing slightly fewer sound system gigs and um, and more DJ gigs, partly from the point of view of trying to reach places where we just couldn't with the sound. So as I mentioned before, going to the States or 
Mexico. And what's um, so? What what can we look out for sort of going forward with Mongo's? What what what's in the pipeline? We're having a bit of a, a change at the moment where um, we 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 have an online shop we've had for for quite a few years, and we're realizing how much effort it takes to to run, and especially when it comes to buying re-releases of old Jamaican tunes um, and, and other people's music in general. So the uh, the guy that's been running that Dale, he's he's moving to Barcelona and we're going to trim, trim that down and, and start just focusing on selling mostly our own music on Bandcamp um, and then also music from... You know, friends and dub family like yourself and OBF, and just concentrating on those kind of things rather than dealing with lots of uh, re-releases of stuff. So it's going to give us a bit more time to focus on on making music, which I'm really excited about. Um, we've had a hefty output over the last fifteen and more years. Um, there always how, seems how to be a deadline. How many on sort of Scotch Bonnet and... Uh, I think I'm right in saying there's been about 230 tracks released. Um, yeah, a lot that's of quite a lot, a lot of material. Of to play them back to back. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and there haven't been many times where myself and Craig as producers can really relax in the studio a bit and experiment a bit more and... Uh, that's that's my plan for for the immediate future is to take a bit of time to kind of tidy up my studio and just start some fresh things. Because I think also if if you've been doing it a long time, you end up with your own sort of revival selection from your own catalogue, if you like, as well. It's like stuff from years ago is really because if you look at the age of a lot of people in dances, a lot of young people, and you know some people who probably weren't even maybe not even born when you were first releasing music so it's a bit scary when people come up and say oh my my dad introduced me to your tunes because <laughs> he loved you when he was young <laughs> um yeah so uh, just really excited about pro- probably releasing slightly less but in a more focused way is is the plan um and then also with gigs to try and get to those places we haven't played so much, like the States and Australia, um, and try and do more gigs there. Nice, nice. And what about, um, I mean, if you when you sort of look back at all, what, what do you think about anything that um, you would have done differently or kind of, is there anything you kind of tell yourself at the start? That you know? um, well, on, on a personal level, I, I worked as a chef for years and years, for the first probably five six years that we were making music and i would work long shifts during the day and then get back to my studio and work four five six hours in the studio have four hours sleep and then start work again at at the restaurant and i i regret not having taken a musical leap sooner and given up the chefing and just gone full throttle on the music um, but it's a really, it's a hard thing to do. It's hard because there's this, this, I was talking to someone else about this the other day, there's just no income at the beginning and you, you need to spend a lot of time doing it, but you're not getting anything back. It's really, really hard and it's like, that's a that's right. kind of decision to make to go for it 
and then yeah, sometimes yeah, it can mess yeah. people up because they they can't pay the rent. Where you really got to try and get a balance. That's right. There's there's no guarantees, especially in the early days, that you're gonna be able to make enough to make a living from music. But um, looking back, I wish we'd give I'd given that a go earlier. But still, like the um, working as a chef, I ended up ended up getting so fed up with it that it it became a motivation to me to say, right, whatever happens, I would rather live in a cardboard box and eat dry beans. Uh, and make music than than just carry on doing something that I wasn't really into. Yeah, so I sometimes those things can really like inspire you to to move forward because because like yeah. I say, it's it's not it's um it, it I th- it's such a challenge the music business to to kind of make a living out of and it's like mm-hmm. I, I often wonder if if we did something different like we were doing plastering or electronics or plumbing or something you put that much work into it then. The, the rewards are sure to be higher, but with music, you've yeah. got this, all this other stuff as well. It's like it's such an amazing thing to still be working in after all these years. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, really, for for us, like the, even the first fifteen years of of what we were doing, um, we were barely making enough to get by. Um, but after you've put in so many thousands of hours into the thing that you love um you hope at least that it's one day going to to kind of pay off in some way and and slowly it's beginning to nice well what i'll bring this to a close because obviously we've been talking for a while and it's really interesting to hear about the um the story of mongos and about all your experiences and it's like what i'm asking all of the guests on the podcast is um the book of dub your name's in the mm-hmm. book of dub. So what would you want written next to it? it can just something you've contributed or something you want to say about yourself or about Mungo's. It can be just w- mm. w- what would you like to be written in the book? Of- I'm opening it now and I'm writing it down. So what, what are you going to say? Um, I'd like to think that Mungo's tried to bring music to people that might not have heard it otherwise uh, and tried to cross over between different musical cultures. Nice. Perfect. Sounds great. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. And, uh, you know, let's hope we're still talking about this in many years to come. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thanks again for joining me and Tom for this fourth episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Please subscribe to the show, visit the website, lifeindub.com, and feel free to email me at vibronics at gmail.com with any comments and suggestions for the show. I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.